Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Titus chapter 2. I have been preaching a series of messages entitled The Spiritually Sound Church from Titus chapter 2. And we have been through verses 1 through 8. But this morning, given that it is Christmas Eve on this Lord's Day, I want us to skip verses 9 and 10. God willing, we'll go back to those verses. But it is appropriate for us this morning to look at verses 11 to 15. Or excuse me, 11 to 14. So if you will, follow along as I read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. A spiritually sound church has at its center and its core the gospel of grace. And how appropriate it is this morning as we are here in Titus chapter 2 to remember that in Christ Jesus and in his birth, in the incarnation of Christ, the grace of God appeared. The whole Old Testament pointed to and foreshadowed the coming of Jesus Christ. There were three offices in the Old Testament in Israel which were prophetic and pointed to Christ. Those three offices in Israel were the prophet, the priest, and the king. Jesus, in his person and work, fulfilled those three Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king. And each of those offices reveals something about the spiritual need of the sinner and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as Savior. Jesus is the prophet. The need of the sinner is this. We need our eyes opened. Sin has so blinded the eyes of sinners so they are spiritually ignorant They are darkened and foolish in their understanding. Ephesians 4 verses 17 and 18 says this, that we are to no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And so the unconverted sinner is still in the futility of his mind. He's darkened in his understanding. There's a spiritual ignorance. And so Jesus comes as the prophet who reveals God to us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The prophet comes and he proclaims the truth for he himself is the truth. Jesus fulfills that office of prophet, but also the office of priest. Sinners are guilty before God. They're under the wrath and judgment of God. Jesus, the great high priest, removes the guilt of sin and He grants to us His righteousness. He dies a 
an efficacious death for our sins. And this priest, Jesus, does not offer up animal sacrifices year after year. This priest offers up himself once and for all time. He sheds his own blood for sinners. He is the priest and he is the lamb slain for sinners. But then there was the Old Testament office of the king. The sinner is in bondage to sin, enslaved to sin. Sin is his master. We are bound to sin. And so we need a savior. We need someone to rescue us, not only from what our sins deserve in condemnation, but the very power of sin. So Jesus is the resurrected, ascended, exalted Lord of heaven and earth. In his birth, he's declared as Christ, the Lord. And so he fulfills the Old Testament office of king. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And all three of these describe something of who he is as Savior. And indeed, we could sum it up by that word, Savior. What a precious word Savior is to the believer. The word Savior is sweet to those who have seen their sin. Who have seen their need to be rescued from the wrath of God. And related to that word Savior, and all its related words like salvation, is another word that we find here in Titus 2. And it is the word grace. For the grace of God has appeared. We know from the scriptures that in the coming of Christ, the promised prophet came. The promised priest came. The promised king came. But we could say this, the promised grace of God in a person came. And what did he do? Well, he brought salvation. He's described in verse 13 as the Savior. And in verse 14, the one who would give himself to redeem us. And all of this by the grace of God. Now, what is the grace of God? Well, we speak of different aspects of the grace of God. There is the sustaining grace of God, the restraining grace of God, and the saving grace of God. There is grace that sustains us. And when we think of that, we think of God's grace and sustaining our very lives. He gives us breath this very moment. And in that sense, there is a common grace given to all men. God graciously gives us life. But there is grace that restrains. Grace that restrains the wickedness of the human heart. And we see God doing that in the world as well. If He were to remove that restraining grace, it would be absolute chaos But instead, God in His mercy restrains the sin of the world, lest there be that chaos. But here in Titus 2, there is a grace that saves. And here it's a grace that rescues from the wrath that our sins deserve. The saving grace of God in this sense is His unmerited favor toward wicked, unworthy sinners, by which He delivers and rescues them from condemnation and the eternal spiritual death that their sins deserve. And how does He do it? Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. William Hendrickson said grace or define grace in this way. God's grace is His active favor, bestowing the greatest gift upon those who have deserved the greatest punishment. The Scripture says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, 
not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. We are those who deserve the greatest punishment, eternal condemnation, but yet in God's grace, he grants us the greatest gift, the forgiveness of sins. The greatest need of man is to be saved, to be rescued by the grace of God. Is there any hope in light of our sin? Is there a Savior? Is there one who rescues from the wrath that our sins deserve? Is there one who rescues from the enslavement of sin? This, this cruel taskmaster that rules the lives of sinners. And the emphatic answer of Scripture from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation is yes, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation. And so this morning, let us consider Titus 2, verses 11 to 14, under these four points. First of all, the grace of God appeared. The grace of God appeared. The grace of God, secondly, accomplished something. It accomplishes salvation. Thirdly, the grace of God instructs in godliness. We see that in verse 12. And then the grace of God, fourthly, brings the hope of heaven. We're looking for another appearance of our Savior on the last day. And so when we look at these verses, we see the grace of God really in, its, in the past, in the present, and in the future. The grace of God appeared. That's the past in verse 11, bringing salvation to all men. But then we see what the grace of God does in the present instructing us in verse 12 to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously now in this present age. But then we see grace bringing about something in the future, beginning in verse 13, looking for in the future the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. And then it goes back to the past who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself now in the present a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And so here we see the grace of God in the past, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God saves us from the penalty of our sin. Christ accomplished that in his life and in his death. But then the grace of God presently saves us from the power of sin. Not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. It currently instructs us and teaches us how to live in light of His grace. And then the grace of God one day in the future will save us from the very presence of sin as we look to that blessed hope, the appearing, the second appearing of our Savior, His second coming. And so if you have received the grace of God that forgives the penalty of sin, then you'll also have the grace of God operative in your life today that saves from the power of sin. And you also have received grace that will one day save you from the very presence of sin. The grace of God does all of this. This is the wonderful grace of God. It, it begins in Titus 2 verse 11 with this, the grace of God appeared. The word appeared means to make manifest, to show oneself, to become visible, to make an appearance. It's the same word that's used in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, when it says, When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, 
There it says that what appeared was the kindness of God. His love for mankind, it made an appearance. But here in Titus 2, the grace of God appeared. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, it says, But now this Savior, the Lord Jesus, has been revealed by His appearing. He made an appearance. God made an appearance. Grace made an appearance. The grace of God appeared in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We saw His glory, John says. John beheld His glory. Those who lived at that time, when they saw Jesus, they were seeing the embodiment of the very grace of God. The grace of God appeared. This stresses the historical reality of the manifestation of the grace of God. And it refers to the whole life of Jesus. His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection. God's grace appeared. It broke into human history. When I was very young, I can't remember the exact age. It might have been around the age of nine or so. I remember growing up in eastern North Carolina in a city called Rocky Mount. I went to a high school where some of you will know the name Phil Ford played basketball in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, the high school I went to and then went on to play basketball at the University of North Carolina. Well, he was several years before me in high school, but I remember he came back through Rocky Mount having won an Olympic gold medal and he was going to play basketball there with with Walter Davis. Some of you might know that name in years past, who also played for the North Carolina Tar Heels, and Jeff Crompton and some others. And they came and played basketball. And as a young child, seeing them on TV and watching the Tar Heels play, I had an opportunity to go and see him in person and sit in a small high school gym. And it, it was almost unreal to me the, to see those players that I watch on TV and and play in a national championship in 1977 to play in person. They, they made an appearance. I even had a little piece of paper and they gave me their autograph, which I cut out and put in the book somewhere and now it's gone forever. I have no idea where it is. But, but it was exciting to me to, to see Phil Ford, Walter Davis, that I had seen these sports figures. And we get excited when people make appearances and But think of this, the grace of God made an appearance. And God's grace appeared in a manner that had never occurred before in human history. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, said this in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. It's recorded there. He said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. That's what Titus 2 verse 11 says. The grace of God appeared. It visited us. And it accomplished redemption for His people. It brought salvation. In Luke chapter 1, verses 78 and 79, Zacharias went on to say, Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness. This is what the grace of God did. It was like an appearance. It was like a bright light that came into the world. And those who saw Him said they saw the salvation of the Lord. 
a light. Luke chapter 2, verse 32. A light of revelation. The grace of God appeared. It's a picture of the grace of God breaking into the world's moral and spiritual darkness like the sun breaks through the darkness every morning. In one sense, God's grace came into the world in a very inconspicuous, humble manner. Jesus was born to an unknown woman named Mary, a young woman of humble means. Jesus was born in a stable laid in a manger, an animal feeding trough for his bed. But in another sense, God's grace came into the world through a gloriously conspicuous manner. We read of it this morning in Luke chapter 2, that angels announced his birth. And it was an announcement to shepherds who were watching their sheep in the night. Some speculate that, that these shepherds may have been shepherds watching the sheep that would be slaughtered in the temple near Jerusalem. Bethlehem being in close proximity. And it was to them that this very conspicuous announcement was made. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Why such praise to God by the angels? Why such a glorious proclamation? This is why the grace of God appeared. The baby born in Bethlehem who would lay down his life for his people, was the very grace of God. You see, grace is not an abstract theological concept. Grace is a person. The grace of God appeared. Jesus Christ appeared. He is the object of our faith. He is our prophet, priest, and king. He is the grace of God bestowed upon sinners. The grace of God appeared. What did the grace of God, Jesus Christ, do when he made an appearance? Well, secondly, we see that the grace of God brought salvation. Verse 11, Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. This is what he brought, salvation. So consider salvation's meaning. Salvation's effectiveness and salvation's reach that we see in this verse, verse 11. What does it mean when it says bringing salvation? What does salvation mean? Well, negatively, when we think of salvation, we say it means we've been rescued from something. But positively, it means that we have been given something. Negatively, so to speak, Salvation means that we're rescued from our sins, the guilt of our sins, slavery to sin, the punishment that our sins deserve. Positively, by bringing salvation, it means that it brought men into a state of righteousness, imputed righteousness. The righteousness of Christ imputed our account. It brings freedom. No longer slaves of sin. It it brings a state of blessedness. No more punishment and condemnation, but now reconciled to God, those who have eternal life. And so salvation means we're rescued from the wrath our sins deserve, but it means we're given all these blessings in Christ. Now notice salvation's effectiveness. Notice the language. The grace of God appeared bringing salvation. Jesus brought salvation. 
The grace of God saves. It actually saves. This is not a potential salvation. This is not a theoretical salvation. This is an effectual and effective and successful salvation. This is why it was declared, She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. And then it says this, For he will save his people from their sins. In John 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The work he was sent to accomplish was the salvation of his people. He didn't come with a mission that would fail. The grace of God appeared bringing salvation. The grace of God appeared to actually accomplish salvation, not to simply make it possible but to secure salvation. And that's why we can say with surety, this is a trustworthy statement, 1 Timothy 1, verse 17 or 15, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not to make it just possible theoretically, no, to actually accomplish the salvation of sinners. This is why Jesus said on the cross before he died, it is finished. He had accomplished the work that he was given to do. He had obtained eternal redemption. He had completed the work the Father had given to him. So this speaks of salvation's effectiveness. The grace of God appeared bringing salvation, accomplishing it for his people. But then we see salvation's reach, bringing salvation to all men. Here's the reach of the grace of God. He brings it to all men. Now, some believe that this phrase, to all men, simply means that God makes salvation universally possible for all men. No, He didn't just make it possible, He accomplishes it. Now, there are verses in the Bible that proclaim Jesus in some sense as the salvation of all men without exception. I believe that's what 1 Timothy 4 verse 10 says when it says this, for it is for It is for this that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men. And I believe that that phrase there means that there is no other Savior. If anyone's going to be saved, He's the only Savior. He's the Savior of all men. But then He says, especially, particularly, namely though, of believers. He actually saves those who place their faith in Him. He is the only way of salvation. But He is the effectual Savior of believers. There were two men that were stuck on the side of a cliff 500 feet from the ground. The first man said to the second man, there are two ways to get down from here. And the second man says, well, what's one way? So the first man pulls out a rope long enough for each of them to scale down the side of the cliff, all 500 feet. And the second man snatches the rope away and throws it off the cliff and says, I don't like that way. Now what's the other way? To which the first man replies, the only other way is to jump. The first way was the way to safely get off this cliff. He had rejected the way to safely scale down the cliff. The only other way would lead to his death. 
If you reject the only God and Savior, there is no other way. In this sense, God is the Savior of all mankind. There is no other way. There is only one who is the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one through whom we can be reconciled to the Father. However, I don't believe that's what Titus 2.11 is teaching us. I don't believe it's simply saying that there's only one way of salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ, the grace of God who appeared. No, I believe that Titus 2.11 is speaking of the fact that the grace of God actually accomplished redemption, and it was accomplished for all men. In what sense? All men without exception universally? No, that would, that would be heresy. He means all men without distinction. The grace of God appeared to save all kinds of men, no matter their race or ethnicity. And we see this throughout the scriptures. Romans 9 verse 24. It speaks of those he called not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Isaiah 49 verse 6. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And so we read in Revelation and in that vision that God gave to John before the throne of God where they're singing, worthy are you. To take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus was born to save men without distinction of race and ethnicity and nationality. He saves from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And so what Paul is proclaiming here in Titus 2, verse 11, the grace of God appeared and he actually secured the salvation of all men without distinction. This salvation is not just for the Jews. It is not for one race, one ethnicity. But he is bringing salvation even to the Gentiles. Jesus was born to save. His name means Yahweh saves. And His salvation is to all people without distinction of race and ethnicity. He is the priest who offered the sacrifice of Himself once and for all time for the sins of His people among all the nations. And so it's a declaration. The grace of God appeared. The grace of God is a person And he brings salvation. Have you come to the person of Jesus Christ, believing upon him, resting upon him for salvation? He is the grace of God. So this verse tells us the grace of God made an appearance historically in time and in space in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the grace of God brought salvation to all men. But thirdly, notice that it doesn't end there. The grace of God then instructs in godliness. So far in Titus 2 verse 11, it's been speaking about what has already been accomplished by the appearing of the grace of God in the person of Christ. But now in verse 12, it turns to what the grace of God does presently in the life of every believer. Verse 12, instructing, present tense, currently, now, The grace of God, operative in the lives of believers, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires 
and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So verse 11 speaks of a past salvation accomplished in the life and death of Christ. But verse 12 speaks of our present salvation, our sanctification, which is also taking place by the grace of God. There are all kinds of views about how a Christian can be made more holy in his practice. And they're usually experience-oriented. Have an emotional experience. You have some sort of crisis experience. You go to a conference, a Christian camp. You get some spiritual zap, some emotional thing that takes place. You read this particular book. You take this particular class. And, and that's what happens. No, sanctification is an ongoing work of God's grace. Notice that the grace of God teaches It not only brings salvation, but then it's operative in the life of the believer to teach and instruct. Instructing us. Now remember, the grace of God is not, again, an abstract theological concept. The grace of God is a person, Jesus Christ. So having been saved by the person and work of Christ, we're now sanctified and instructed by the person of Christ. He is the sovereign Lord the king who commands his people and they are to follow him. He commands and we obey. He instructs. We're to be taught all that he has commanded, this one who is the very grace of God. Notice that the grace that saves and justifies is the same grace that sanctifies and makes the believer holy in his practice. That should encourage you. When we think of the grace of God in our justification, the grace of God in saving us, forgiving our sin, then it should also then stir up our hearts to say, this same grace is operable and able to now sanctify me. So the grace that saved, past tense, is the grace that now saves, sanctifies in the present tense. The grace of God not only brings justification, but it brings sanctification. And so the grace of God instructs believers in godliness. Now there are those who turn the grace of God into licentiousness, Jude verse 4 says. They they turn the grace of God into an excuse to sin. Oh, I'm forgiven of my sin, I'm justified, so now I can live any way I want to live. Where they say things like Romans 6 and... Paul, who makes an argument that this is not true, where they say, oh, let's sin that grace may increase so that the grace of God would abound even more. If I sin more, then isn't it logical? The more I sin, then the more there's grace to forgive that sin. And he says, may it never be. He says, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. The fact that you are under grace doesn't mean you sin more. It means you sin less. And so if a person uses the grace of God as an excuse to sin and continue in it, he doesn't understand the grace of God at all. He doesn't understand that the grace of God is a person who is not only the the prophet and the priest who laid down his life, but he's also the king, the Lord, who now instructs us in how to live as believers. And so the grace of God brings salvation, but also the grace of God instructs us 
We see that in verse 12. The word instruct is a word that's translated in all kinds of ways in, in English in our Bibles. Sometimes it means to train, sometimes to correct, sometimes to discipline. It's an all-encompassing word that means the grace of God is at work in the life of the believer to do all those things, to train in righteousness, to correct when we go astray, to discipline us for our spiritual good. And what does it instruct us to do? It says in verse 12, to deny something. The word deny means to disregard, to renounce, to reject. It's the word Jesus used when he said that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must take up, or first he must deny himself. He must deny himself. And here the grace of God, the person of Christ says you must deny certain things. What must you deny as a believer? Ungodliness. Ungodliness. That once characterized us. We were, according to Romans 5 verse 6, called the ungodly. Our lives were full of irreverence for God. We didn't hallow His name. We didn't love Him. We didn't desire His glory. We're to deny now ourselves in the grace of God this life of ungodliness. Now we're those who seek to be godly by the grace of God. It instructs us away from worldly desires. So it's not just how we behave, but also even what we desire. It instructs us to deny and renounce worldly, sinful desires that were characteristic of us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were under the domain of darkness, it says in Colossians 1. So Jesus, the Lord, gets to the issues of the heart, what we desire, what we seek, what we love, I'm so thankful that when he saves, when the grace of God saves from the consequences of sin, he now grants a new heart with new desires and new loves. I once loved the world. Now I love God. I once loved my sin. Now I love righteousness. The grace of God is at work increasing holy desires, but also increasing Holy hatreds, as you've heard me say before, where now we want to deny those worldly sinful desires. This is the grace of God at work currently in the life of the believer. The things that once characterized him, now he wants to deny, renounce, put off, put away. And so it says the grace of God came, it appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, but not just deny those things, but now here's how you are to live, verse 12, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. This is to be the pattern of your life. This is what is to characterize your life. This is life indeed. This is the abundant life that the grace of God gives, the person of Christ gives to us. We're to live sensibly. Remember that word we've seen over the last several weeks? That is to characterize all of God's people, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. Here, this is what the grace of God, the Apostle Paul is saying, this isn't something you muster up in your own life. The grace of God is now at work, operative, instructing, teaching, and showing how to live sensibly, to be of sound mind and sound judgment. And instructs us how to live righteously. 
Now that we have been justified and made righteous by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, we want to match our practice with our position. We don't want it to just be true of our position. We want to now practically live righteously. And he says godly in a way that is consistent with the very character and nature of God. But then he reminds them, this isn't, don't get in a works mentality. Remember, Christ came, verse 14, he gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. He came to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He gave himself to do what? To redeem, to buy back, to purchase you out of the bonds of slavery to sin. And to purify, to, to mark out a people that would be his own possession. And this is the promise of the new covenant. I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They're my possession. And so the grace of God appears and Christ comes and He redeems us. He purchases us out of slavery to sin. He redeems us. He purifies us. He sets us apart to, to Himself that we might now be zealous. Zealous for good deeds. Zealous for the glory of God. All this done by the person of Christ. You say, but the world we live in is such an evil, wicked Age. How can this be? Well, in Titus 2, verse 12, he reminds us again that we're to live this way sensibly, righteously, and godly, even in the present age. This present age is a, an evil age, according to Galatians 1, verse 4. There's wickedness all around us. The world is going a different direction. The world is filled with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. How can a Christian live in that present, this present age in the way that is described here in Titus 2.12. It's the grace of God. You see, the grace of God is not just unmerited favor. It's the power of God at work in the life of the believer. So that even with all the ungodliness, even with remaining corruption that is within us, the ungodliness around us, this grace of God is at work instructing us, disciplining us, training us, to renounce things that are contrary to the will of God and to live in this sensible, righteous, and godly way. See, the grace of God instructs in godliness. This is the lordship of Christ. See, when you think of the grace of God, we, we've spoken about this so many times to remind you, don't just look at the grace of God as rescuing you from the wrath your sins deserve, as glorious as that is, but always remember the same grace of God is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We should be the most optimistic people understanding this truth when it comes to our present sanctification. God is at work. So whatever sin you're wrestling with, whatever sin that just continues to come up over and over, God is at work. He's training you in righteousness. He is at work in your life by the same grace that justified you now at work to sanctify you don't lose heart instead know that this same jesus who is my prophet priest and king is my king to put sin to death i am simply to bow the knee to him 
to know His Word, what He has commanded, apply that to my life by the power of the Spirit that I might deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly, even in this present age. But we also see a fourth aspect. And we don't have time to look at this in detail, but maybe we'll come back to this in more detail. The grace of God appeared in the past in the person of Christ. The grace of God brought salvation. The grace of God currently instructs us in godliness, but there is this future aspect. The grace of God brings the hope of heaven. We see that in verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. It's like a bookend to verse 11. The grace of God appeared in the past, a historical reality, breaks into human history in the fullness of time. Christ comes in the incarnation to rescue His people from their sins. But there's another appearing. This will not be a humble Savior born in a manger. It will be the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. He will appear in power and glory. This is referring to the second coming of Christ. He will not come on this occasion as a Savior. He will come as a judge. He will come as one who sets all of creation free from the curse of sin. He will come as the one who will judge unbelievers. He will come to be glorified, another passage says, in His saints. It will be the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. This is the grace of God that we celebrate. How is the sinner justified? Grace. How is the sinner sanctified? Having believed on Christ by grace. How will the sinner be glorified? How will the very presence of sin be removed? It will be grace. It's grace, grace, grace. Salvation is all of grace. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we thank You that we can rejoice in these things. We thank You that this Gospel, this good news, is at the heart of every spiritually sound church. May we rejoice in these things. Lord, in all the things that we have seen in weeks before that You have called us to be, how to live in a manner that is consistent with and fitting with sound doctrine. Lord, thank You that this is all by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who has appeared and accomplished our redemption, who is at work in us by His Spirit and the Word to sanctify us, who one day will, in a powerful, mighty way, appear again to finish the work of salvation and remove the very presence of sin. Lord, I pray that we would long for, look for, the appearing of our great God and Savior. So even as we celebrate and remember the first coming of Christ, may we always be looking toward the second coming of Christ. And Lord, as those who have our hope fixed upon His appearing again, may we do as the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, 
May we purify ourselves even as he is pure. For one day we will see him face to face and we will be made like him. Lord, thank you that your grace accomplishes all of this. May we not boast in anything in ourselves, but give all glory to you. And I pray for believers that are here, Lord, as we are in this present age wrestling with sin, striving by your grace. Lord, may we not strive in our own strength, but in the strength and grace that you provide. May your word be at work in us. May the Spirit be at work in us to make us a people who are zealous for good deeds, a people who've been set apart as a people for your own possession. And so, Father, we thank you for this work of grace. And may we long again even more for that final work of grace on the final day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.